Hello and welcome. This is Christianity, the backstory. Looking between the lines of church history and the New Testament. This is Chapter 8, Acts of the Spotlight, Part 4. So I've changed the name of the podcast to Christianity, the Backstory. This is because I think this name says more about the journey of inquiry that we're on, and it doesn't have that negative element. Shaking Christianity was a name that for me referred to the process that I've been going through of shaking Christianity from my system, which, by the way, is not an easy thing to do when your world has been in Christian circles for years. It's been a long process. Why would I want to get Christian thinking out of my system? For those who are coming in on this episode, well, that's what this podcast called Christianity the Backstory is about. There are good reasons to believe that Christianity does not have a heritage that goes back to the first century Jewish movement that it's supposed to go back to, but rather it had its origin in a place called Antioch. Misinformation. This is a word that's come up for me in thinking about what we've seen so far in this podcast. People turn to Christian sources for information about the history of Christianity, which sounds like it makes sense, and it would, if Jesus and his followers were Christians. But if they weren't, it means we've been getting information from people highly motivated to make it sound like they were. And I think we've seen a lot of evidence for this. According to Dictionary.com, misinformation is, quote, False information that is spread, regardless of whether there is intent to mislead. Unquote. False information, whether or not there is an intent to mislead. So Christians are generally not on a mission to mislead people, because they sincerely have confidence in the truth and importance of what they believe. But their predecessors, those early Christians who got out the papyrus or the parchment, and wrote things down for the benefit of believers further removed. Do we see a culture of deception in their work? Is there an intent to mislead when it comes to a certain Jewish movement based in Jerusalem? The Book of Acts that we're going through gives us a story that says Christianity had its origin in Jerusalem. And 1 and 2 Peter, if this is the real Peter, then it looks like he was a Christian which would suggest the movement in Jerusalem was a Christian movement. But these two documents, 1 and 2 Peter, were they written by the Peter who was condemned by Paul in Galatians for being too influenced by law-observant Jews? The Peter who was with James and thousands of Jews in Jerusalem who were zealous for the law and was a follower of Jesus who also taught law-observance based on loving your neighbour, rather than the legalism that Paul speaks of. There does seem to be a difference between these two Peters. The real Peter might have written letters to God's elect in Asia Minor. He could have been writing to fellow Jews there. Maybe good Jews who escaped the attention of the author of Acts and weren't trying to kill Paul as he travelled around that region. But if this was not the real Peter, if it was a Christian writing in his name, this would not have been such an unusual thing. Something else that is interesting about Christianity is pseudepigraphy. People writing in someone else's name, pretending to be them. 
Why was this such a common practice? And why was it necessary? If early Christian churches like the one in Antioch were essentially satellites of the quote-unquote Jerusalem church, and there was a good relationship that continued between Jerusalem and Antioch, at least until AD 70 in the Jewish-Roman War, why do we only seem to have pretend letters to affirm the idea that an early bishop of Antioch had personal relationships with the people who knew Jesus? Second Epistle of Ignatius of Antioch to St. John widely considered to be spurious by historians, and for good reason. Quote, His friend Ignatius to John the Holy Presbyter, If thou wilt give me leave, I desire to go up to Jerusalem and see the faithful saints who are there, especially Mary the Mother, whom they report to be an object of admiration and of affection to all. For who would not rejoice to behold and to address her who bore the true God from her own womb, provided he is a friend of our faith and religion. And in like manner the venerable James, who is surnamed Just, whom they relate to be very like Jesus Christ in appearance, in life and in method of conduct, as if he were a twin brother of the same womb. They say that if, if I see him, I see also Jesus himself, as to all the features and aspects of his body. Moreover, the other saints, both male and female, Alas, why do I delay? Why am I kept back? Kind teacher, bid me hasten to fulfil my wish, and fare thou well. Amen. Unquote. The real Ignatius of Antioch did live early enough to have sought out these people, but his genuine letters show no interest in this, nor any familiarity with John, even though later church fathers claimed he had such a relationship. Ignatius writes to Mary, and this is the reply of the Blessed Virgin, quote, The lowly handmaid of Christ, Jesus, to Ignatius, her beloved fellow disciple, the things which thou hast heard and learned from John concerning Jesus are true. Believe them, cling to them, and hold fast to the profession of that Christianity which thou hast embraced, and conform thy habits and life to thy profession. Now I will come in company with John to visit thee, and those that are with thee. Stand fast in the faith, and show thyself a man. Nor let the fierceness of persecution move thee, but let thy spirit be strong and rejoice in God thy Saviour. Amen. Unquote. This is about a relationship that later Christians believed was supposed to exist between Antioch and Jerusalem. This sort of thing shows that at least when these documents were written, they probably didn't have anything authentic to substantiate that relationship. Pseudepigraphy was common. Scholars recognised that it was an accepted practice when they look at many such documents from these times. But if you take out all the Christian pseudepigraphy from these early centuries, how common would this practice look then? Common or not? The pseudepigraphy of these documents is lying in one of the worst ways in order to deceive people into believing things that are not true, important things that people are supposed to have faith in. The worst part about lying is the intention to deceive, and how bad that is, is about the magnitude of that deception. 
No matter what the environment was like in this regard at these times, people with integrity would not have done this. Imagine if this was done to you. Imagine if someone wrote something in your name claiming to be you and saying things that you never said. You wouldn't think very highly of them, and it wouldn't help that they were pious people trying to reinforce what they believe for the supposed benefit of others. It seems pretty clear to me that there were Christian contributors to the New Testament who were liars. Like the redactor of Matthew who wrote, His blood be on us and on our children. That's a lie. The crowd did not call out those words as I illustrated in the second part of the introduction to this podcast. And there seem to be many lies like this in the New Testament. Lies in support of Gentile Christianity. Church fathers who seem to lie about the contact their predecessors had with the Apostle John which we'll get to soon. The chief among these lies is the claim that the Jews killed Jesus. When it was the Roman governor who ordered Jesus' crucifixion, a man who had no concern to appease the Jews of Jerusalem. Lies can be traced and connected with motives, motives like those the Roman Catholic Church might have had to exonerate the Roman governor of responsibility for the crucifixion of Jesus. Christianity was not above lying to advance the story of its choosing. The evidence is there, and it is substantial. I wonder if the Jewish contributors to the New Testament were liars. Does James show integrity? I think so. Isn't this something scholars should look for? Internal integrity. The integrity of the writer, and how untouched by people with less integrity the document appears to be. Okay, after a lengthy diversion, we're now returning to the Book of Acts and the survey of this document. We're going through the story for things the apostles, in inverted commas, are doing. After talking in chapter 11 about the church in Antioch, Paul, Barnabas, and disciples in Antioch, the story does go back to the disciples of Jesus again, and there's some persecution happening. James, the brother of John, is put to death at the start of chapter 12. There's a bit more about Peter. He's put in prison, but he gets out with the help of an angel. Herod gets struck down by an angel and eaten by worms because he accepts praise as a god from people when he's sitting on his big throne before them, in his royal robes. Then we get to chapter 13, and it goes on to describe how Barnabas and Paul are sent off from Antioch by the Holy Spirit. And from here right through to the last chapter of Acts, chapter 28, it's pretty much all about Paul. Apart from a couple of trips to Jerusalem, where Paul is affirmed, received warmly by the brothers, and God is praised for what is being done among the Gentiles. So Paul and Barnabas go down to Seleucia, and then to Cyprus, then Salamis, and they teach in the synagogues. Someone called John is their helper. They go to Paphos, where Paul curses a Jewish sorcerer and makes him go blind. They sail to a place called Perga. John leaves them and returns to Jerusalem. Then Pisidian Antioch, and they go into the synagogue where Paul preaches. Within his message, Paul says these words. Chapter 13, verse 27, quote, 
the people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read out every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. Unquote. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. There are other places in this book and other books of the New Testament that say a lot of people of Jerusalem did recognize Jesus. That he was well received by the people and so was his movement. Paul and our author don't seem to want to recognize this, not in a way that recognizes that movement. Anyway, Paul and Barnabas are received well and invited back in a week's time, and the following week many people gather. But the Jews are jealous and they turn against Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas say to them, Acts 13.46, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you rejected and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. Unquote. And the Jews stir up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, so they head to Iconium. They go to the synagogue. Jews and Gentiles believe, but, quote, the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers, unquote. Their message is confirmed by the ability to do signs and wonders. But, chapter 14, verse 4, quote, The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles, unquote. Funny. The real apostles were Jews, right? Here we've got the Jews on one side and the apostles on the other. How would that have sounded if it was read by Jews in Jerusalem? The Jews being a term used for those who opposed the apostles, Paul and Barnabas, who are also supposed to be Jews. What does this terminology tell us? This document is not intended for Jews. Next there's a plot to stone them, but they find out about it and flee to Lystra and Derbe. Paul heals a cripple, and the people proclaim he and Barnabas to be gods, so they have to get them to settle down. But then, Acts 14.19, Some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. Unquote. Strange. Stoning was a way that they killed people, right? By throwing rocks at them. And Paul was stoned enough for people to think he was dead. But he just gets up and he's on his way. Then they're going through a number of places. They appoint elders in each church and sail back to Antioch. Then chapter 15 and the council at Jerusalem, which we'll look at more closely later. I'll be putting forward that the agenda of the author of Acts is to have Paul's teaching validated by the Jews who knew Jesus, while at the same time condemning any Jewish influence that challenges the position of Paul and his gospel message. We'll see that this agreeable relationship between Paul and James, Peter, etc., is likely to have been written into the story based on evidence in Paul's own letters. 
A letter of instruction is sent from Jerusalem to Antioch, Syria and Cilicia, and two leaders from the Jerusalem community are sent with the letter, Judas and Silas. Next we pick up a disagreement between Paul and Barnabas, where they part company, and Barnabas goes off with the John who had been with them previously, also called Mark, while Paul partners up with Silas. They go through towns where Paul had preached before and pick up a young man named Timothy. Chapter 16, verse 4, quote, As they travelled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. Unquote. The authority of Jerusalem recognised the passing on of their teaching to the towns our evangelists are going to, but only about what not to do. Here's the letter as presented in chapter 15. Quote, the apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria and Cilicia, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. Unquote. That'll do. That's all we need to know. Don't eat the wrong food and no sexual immorality. It's a part of what's called the Noahide Laws, moral duties put forward in the Hebrew Bible for all peoples. But there's nothing about what Jesus taught. People awaiting a word from the Mother Church might have thought that this was a bit light on. There's not a lot to go on there if you want to run a church service. A bit like arriving at your new place of employment and getting instructions from head office that say, don't walk on the grass. Paul's letters are much more informative. They tell us what to believe. So there's the impression that head office has no reservations whatsoever in endorsing Paul and anything and everything that he's been teaching. The start of this letter is interesting. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. Let's compare this with that passage in Galatians. Paul, Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, quote, When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Unquote. Barnabas also led astray by these people, the man who had been with Paul, but then left him. If you take away the negative portrayal of everyone from Jerusalem, 
in this passage. You have men who came from James, the leader there, who are saying the wrong things and are being identified with those who belong to the circumcision group, clearly a group that Paul is opposed to. This circumcision group, are they the ones who were disturbing and troubling people's minds by what they said? Because it seems like they came from James, and their message for those who would follow Jesus might have been a bit more than a don't-walk-on-the-grass addendum to Paul's gospel. It's quite appropriate that the Noahide laws might have been a part of what came from Jerusalem for Gentile believers, but clearly there was the teaching of Jesus to be communicated. And an envoy like Peter, when he went to communities further afield who were part of the same movement as him, to teach them and pass on what he knew from experience, he would have been received with respect and recognition as someone to be listened to. And if he went to a church where this wasn't the case, where a rival teacher had the podium, he might have been received in the way Paul describes in Galatians. Okay, then Paul and Silas go through a few more places, with the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Jesus keeping them from preaching in certain regions, and being guided by vision to go to Macedonia. They end up in Philippi, a Roman colony, and get thrown in prison after Paul calls a spirit out of a slave girl. The crowd is against them, calling out that they are Jews and they are throwing the city into an uproar. They're stripped and beaten, then thrown into prison. That night there's an earthquake and prison doors flying open, but instead of escaping, they save the jailer. And then in the morning the order comes to release them, and Paul pulls out his Roman citizen card. I'm a Roman citizen. So how dare they beat us and throw us into prison, and the authorities are desperate to appease them. We pick them up again in Thessalonica, chapter 17. Paul in the synagogue, reasoning with the Jews from the scriptures on three successive Sabbath days. Quote, Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Unquote. Then Berea, believers among the Jews again, then the bad Jews are chasing them again. Then in Athens, debating with and preaching to philosophers. Then Corinth, chapter 18, he spends some time with a Jewish couple and continues reasoning with the people in synagogues. And then we have another pointer for the shift from Jew to Gentile. Chapter 18, verse 6, quote, But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Unquote. From here on, the Jews, not forgetting that this refers to an entire race of people, really get nasty and stupid. They make a united attack on Paul and bring him before Gallio, the Gentile proconsul of Achaia. Chapter 18, verse 12, complaining that Paul is, quote, persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law, unquote. 
A law that is transgressed by worshipping God in the wrong way could only be the religious Jewish law, nothing to do with the law of the land. So the proconsul makes the obvious response and ejects them from the court. Then for some reason they all turn on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him up. A Christian could ask a Jew how likely this story is to be true, but the problem is that the Christian basically believes that God is telling the story. So these Jews before Gallio must have been that thick-headed in the mind of the Christian. The theme of Acts is starting to really get into gear. Our hero Paul gets a haircut and, and then sails off with the Jewish couple. They get to Ephesus and he's off on his own again, again reasoning with the Jews in the synagogue. They want him to spend more time with them, but he declines, saying, maybe next time. A bit more travelling and he's back in Antioch again, and off again through some other places. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos goes to Ephesus. Quote, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. Unquote. He taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. The baptism of John was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, according to Mark chapter 1. So, Priscilla and Aquila, the Jewish couple who were friends of Paul, invite Apollos to their home to explain to him the way of God more adequately. It seems this is an account of the conversion of Apollos to Pauline Christianity. He entered Ephesus as a man teaching a limited understanding of Jesus, according to this author. Accurate, but limited. This limitation being identified by the fact that he knew only the baptism of John. He needed something in addition to this. If John as a prophet was calling people to repentance and baptizing for the forgiveness of sins through repentance, a concept that is in keeping with Judaism, and the teaching of Jesus. The concept of Jesus' death being a sacrifice for sins, if Paul is right about this, it's extra to this Jewish practice and can only be assimilated into the belief system if it is retrofitted, making the Jewish practice something that was ineffectual except that it was a ritual that looked forward to the death of Jesus. Otherwise, the death of Jesus as a sacrifice for sins wouldn't be necessary and wouldn't make sense, in the same way that it doesn't make sense to most Jews. So it's reasonable to assume that Apollos didn't see Jesus' death as a sacrifice for sins. And then he did, after hearing Paul's gospel. And maybe that's why he gets a mention in Acts and becomes a minor hero, vigorously refuting the Jews in public debate, because he is now a Christian. He gets written in as a positive character, a rare Jew who has seen the light. He is no longer one of the many nameless bad Jews that are always there, snarling in the background, resisting the truth. Next thing, Paul is back in Ephesus. Chapter 19, verse 1, quote, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. 
There he found some disciples, and he asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about twelve men in all. Unquote. So looking at Apollos' conversion again, he was introduced as a Jew, and then as someone who had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and taught about Jesus accurately. But something's missing, and once he's accepted something in addition to what he believes, he's part of Paul's thing called the way, and he's approved presumably by Paul and by our narrator. Then in the passage I just read out, Paul meets twelve disciples. What that means here is unclear. You would think they were believers in Jesus. Paul says to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? But then further down, he tells them to believe in Jesus. Does that mean they didn't believe in Jesus? Whatever is going on here, they also lack something. They don't know about the Holy Spirit. What baptism did they receive? Just John's baptism. Let's stop here for a moment. What we're getting here, if this is true, is Paul's side of the story. It reads like he was travelling on his own at this stage, so let's assume he passed it on. And we're also getting this author's slant on it, for those who are willing to accept that this author has an agenda. So the idea is that Paul is right, and anyone who disagrees with him is wrong and needs to be assimilated into Paul's way. By accepting what? What is it that people like Apollos and these twelve men need to accept in order to receive the Holy Spirit? Is it the Christ concept, the idea that Jesus' death was a sacrifice and God's plan for the forgiveness of sins? It seems this is being added to the concept of Jesus held by Jews. Confirmation is given that the twelve men receive the Holy Spirit when Paul places his hands on them. But how do you know that the Spirit of God has entered someone? Isn't that just an entirely subjective interpretation of an event? Did they wiggle around a bit? Did they fall over? It says they spoke in tongues and prophesied, but interpretation of this sort of thing is in the eye of the beholder. In other places in this book, something like that could be interpreted as demonic possession, depending on the circumstances. My guess is it didn't matter what they did. They could have done backflips and started bending spoons with their minds, just as long as they agreed with Paul. This is all given to us through the theological lens of people who believe that there's only one way to believe in Jesus, and it's a whole lot about Paul's ideas and has very little to do with what any Jews who don't agree with Paul think. Back to the twelve men again. Like Apollos, they only knew the baptism of John. This suggests that they might be Jews who believe that forgiveness of sin is available through repentance. Paul recognises this as the nature of John's baptism, 
and then he tells them to believe in Jesus. But it started with these 12 men by saying they were disciples. And they're asked, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they're believers. But there's apparently an assent required to whatever Paul means when he tells them to believe. And they are baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Firstly, this suggests that they weren't familiar with the baptism into the name of the Lord Jesus. And secondly, they mustn't have been familiar with what this baptism was for. Okay, so, baptism. How did Jesus view baptism? In Mark 16, 15, Jesus says, quote, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned, unquote. This suggests that people who believe in Jesus will be baptized. Believing in Jesus is about believing the right gospel, and if you don't believe, you will be condemned. But this passage in Mark happens to be in a disputed portion at the end that is not in the earliest manuscripts, so it's likely to have been added. Matthew 28.19 also supports a Christian understanding of baptism. Quote, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Unquote. Other than that, as far as I know, Jesus didn't tell people to get baptized in association with believing in him, according to the Gospel accounts. But according to the Gospel of John, he and his disciples did baptize people in the Jordan River at the same time as John the baptizer was baptizing elsewhere on the same river. John 3.22, quote, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John was also baptizing at Anon near Salem because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument develops between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing, and everyone is going to him, unquote. There is every reason to believe that Jesus was baptizing in the same tradition as John. In other words, there is every reason to believe that back then, when these things actually happened, in that time and place, Jesus, as a Jew, was administering a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. On the other hand, if Jesus, okay, let's refer to him by the name he most likely was actually known by, to aid in being transported in our imagination back to that time. If Yeshua, in the first century, at some place on the shores of the Jordan River, had people come to him to be baptized, Jewish people of Judea, first century Judea, coming to him to be baptized, before there was anything remotely like a church, before the word church or ecclesia was used to refer to the meeting places of people known as Christians, before there were Christians, people referred to by a nickname that was to come out of Antioch, 
a long way away from the Jordan River, a nickname that would apply to people who were, by and large, not Jews, people that were generally not like Jews, because they are to have sacred writings that would stain the name of the Jews, stain the name of Yeshua's people. Before there was a movement known as The Way, before Paul wrote his letters, before anyone had the idea that this man from Tarsus had a God-inspired supreme understanding of Yeshua, even though he would never actually even meet him. If way back then, Jews of Judea came to Yeshua at the Jordan River to be baptised, and he said to them, Do you accept me as your personal Lord and Saviour? They wouldn't have understood that, right? They've come to the Jordan to be baptised as a sign of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. They could have gone to the temple to offer a sacrifice, where, among other things, animals were brought as an offering to God and killed to atone for sins, I believe. They may not have been able to afford this, and John's baptism might have been regarded as an acceptable alternative. Or, these might have been people who didn't agree with animal sacrifice. There's debate over whether the Essenes were people who were against animal sacrifice, for example. There might have been a lot of people who wondered why God might want us to kill an animal or a bird because we fancy the neighbor's wife or something. These people on the shore of the Jordan River who have come to Jesus to be baptized, what are they thinking? Why have they come? I'm certainly not the best one to speculate on this, but if temple sacrifices were necessary to atone for sin, how does a baptism in the Jordan River also suffice? These could have been opposing ideas. John seems to have been someone who did his thing out in the desert, at the river, removed from the temple scene. In Matthew chapter 3, he condemns the Sadducees, men who were in charge of the temple, and says to them, Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Maybe speaking up for the idea that it's about what you do rather than what is done for you at the temple. Mark 11.32 has the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders, challenging Jesus when he's at the temple, asking by what authority he's doing these things. Jesus replies, quote, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven? or of human origin, tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. Unquote. Everyone held that John really was a prophet. But the temple officials didn't. Sounds like opposing ideologies, and it sounds like a very widespread movement towards John as a prophet and to his baptism by the people of Jerusalem. So these people coming to the shores of the Jordan might have been Jews who paid more attention to passages in their scriptures that seemed to speak against sacrifice. Micah 6, 6-8, quote, 
Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Unquote. Hosea 6.6 6, For I desire goodness, not sacrifice obedience to God rather than burnt offerings. Unquote. Psalm 58-15 Were I hungry, I would not tell you, for mine is the world and all it holds. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Unquote. Isaiah one eleven. What need have I of all your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and, and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you? This trampling of my courts. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. Unquote. See also Jeremiah 7, 22-23, Amos 5, 21-24, Psalm 51, 17-19. So I am no expert on this. I am familiar with Christianity, but not familiar with Judaism. These passages are found within books that give instructions for sacrifice, and I haven't looked at the context of each one of these quotes, and I don't know how repentance for the forgiveness of sins might have fitted in with the idea of temple sacrifices. I recall Rabbi Michael Skoback in his series on the New Testament that I mentioned earlier, saying that repentance would have been very much a part of the sacrificial process at the temple. But it seems that for people who didn't like seeing streams of blood flowing out of that temple, there is a takeaway in these passages. There wasn't just one Judaism in first century Judea, which means, I believe, that there wasn't just one way to view these things. So, Jesus and John. They're out there with the people coming to them. John says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Matthew 3.2 Jesus says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Matthew 4.17 There's the feeling of something revolutionary in the air. Messianic expectation. And it seems pretty clear that Jesus and John are aligned. They are not working in opposition to each other. It also seems like the people who came out to be baptised were responding to this call, not just to be cleansed of sin, but to be part of something. But if Jesus had different ideas to John, other ideas about how sin should be dealt with, Christian ideas involving himself as the ultimate sacrifice, when people came to him, he would have needed to sit them down and tell them that the baptism of repentance that John is persisting with on the other side of the Jordan, over near Salem, doesn't work. It's just a sort of precursor to the only real way you can be forgiven, which is what Jesus has come for. And then he might have explained the gospel message that he was planning to impart to Paul of Tarsus by special revelation on the road to Damascus in a few years. 
So the people would have had a choice. One side of the river for Jews and the other side for Christians. And if anyone was still on his side of the river after this explanation, Jesus might have gone with them into the water and said, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But he wouldn't have said that, would he? This is the early first century. Jesus may as well have said he'd come to introduce them to cloud computing. The Christian idea of baptism didn't exist yet. So what did the people come to Jesus for? It seems like it would have been for a Jewish baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and I believe that that's what he would have conducted. Repentance, a concept that, in regards to forgiveness for sin, an effective means for forgiveness, is only objectionable to Christians who have been indoctrinated by Paul. People who also believe that our good works in this regard are as filthy rags before God, because Paul says so. You can't work your way to heaven, is the negative slant given. It can't have anything to do with what you do, so it comes down to what you think. But somehow there's an achievement in thinking right that gets you to heaven. Of course, repentance and doing good are things that are valued, but only as secondary things. It's only the blood of Jesus that can wash away your sin. The Messiah was never meant to live as a leader of the people. He was meant to die as a sacrifice for sins. Jews would not have tended to believe this, not at the time of Jesus and not at the time of Paul. And this includes Jews who believed in Jesus. So going back to the time of Paul and Acts, the Jews who were followers of Jesus it says there were a lot of them, thousands of them, in the very early days, and they increased rapidly. Acts 21.20 has James and the elders of Jerusalem saying to Paul, quote, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law, unquote. This is a lot of Jewish people who believe in Jesus and think very differently to Paul. Where are they in the story? Paul runs into Jews a lot in Acts, and they almost all seem to be opposed to his gospel. The Jews who Paul has a relationship with, and who get a special mention in the story, are the few who are converted to become people who believe what he teaches. If there are Jewish believers coming out from Jerusalem who are zealous for the law, he definitely does not have a good relationship with them, as we've seen. He has special terminology for them focusing on things he knows are unpopular with his Gentile audience, like circumcision. And that'll do for part four. I think we're up around 40 minutes again. The idea of 20-minute episodes has gone by the wayside. The fifth and final part of Acts of the Spotlight will be next. Thanks for listening.